Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we talk with Los Angeles faith leader Rabbi Sharon Browse about community and spirituality and how she's been grappling with the Israel-Hamas war, the attack on October 7th, the destruction of Gaza, the reaction here in the U.S. Browse for decades has been ministering to congregants of ECAR, and she wrote last month in the New York Times, Humans naturally incline toward the known. Our tribes can uplift us, order our lives, give them meaning and purpose. But, she writes, that instinct can also be perilous. The more closely we identify with our tribe, the more likely we are to dismiss or even feel hostility toward those outside it. More with Rabbi Brous. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Rabbi Sharon Brous says that humans are deeply relational beings with an innate yearning to be known. And decades of ministering to people at ICAR, the Jewish community she co-founded in Los Angeles, to people in sorrow or confusion or in pain these last few difficult months, have reinforced for Browse that, quote, when so many of us feel that we are breaking, do not take your broken heart and go home. Don't isolate. Step toward those whom you know will hold you tenderly. Browse calls these tender encounters the Amen effect, which is vital to reminding us of our shared humanity, that our lives and destinies are entwined. The Amen Effect is also the title of her new book. Rabbi Brous, welcome to Forum. Thank you so much, Mina. Happy to be here with you. Glad to have you with us. There's this obscure ancient text that you've called your unlikely teacher and guide and your North Star, especially these last few months when so many have felt heartbroken. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, yeah. This is a text that I first encountered when I was a seminary student in rabbinical school. And I saw the text and I realized I just, I, there was some incredible mysterious power to it, but I think I hadn't experienced enough life yet to understand it. Mm. So I, I photocopied it and I put it back in my book and put it back on the shelf. It comes from the Mishnah, which is an ancient Jewish compendium of law uh, codified around the year 220 CE. So very ancient text. Um, moved from New York to Los Angeles. We built a community. Um, I had some children. I had some pregnancy losses. I married, officiated at the weddings of a lot of people, helped folks through divorce, 
buried a lot of people, some after tragic death, and one day opened up this book and the piece of paper fell out that I had copied years before. Wow. And I looked at it and I suddenly understood what it meant. Um, the text describes an ancient pilgrimage ritual when Jews used to come from all across the land and the diaspora and they would ascend to Jerusalem, this city on a hill, and they would climb up the steps at the Temple Mount and enter through this grand entryway and turn to the right and circle in a counterclockwise way hundreds of thousands of people at once. And Mina, when I envision this ritual enacted, I think about the Hajj because it's such a powerful visual for us of what it means to have so many masses of people in sync with each other engaging in this sacred work of pilgrimage. But the texts and the people would circle around, but they and then they'd essentially exit the same spot where they entered, except the text says for someone with a broken heart, that person would go up to Jerusalem, up the steps of the Temple Mount, but they would turn to the left when everyone else turned to the right. And they would circle clockwise against the current of humanity that was coming toward them. And every person who's coming from the direction of the people who are okay would see this anguished person and have to stop and ask very simply in in the Hebrew, Malach, what happened to you? Tell me your story. Why is your heart broken? And that person would answer saying, I am a mourner. My father just died. I'm worried about my child. I found a lump. I'm sick. I'm lonely. Whatever the reason was for their heartache. And then the person walking from the direction of the folks who are okay would have to offer them a blessing. They would say, may you be comforted by the one who dwells in this place. May you be embraced by community as you navigate this hardship. And then each party would go on. And Mina, what I realized as I re-encountered this text, now having experienced some life, is the profound psychological insight and spiritual insight at the heart of this ancient ritual, which is that not that all of the parties who are involved in this are engaging in counter-instinctual work, that we desperately need those kind of sacred encounters, but none of those parties want to be in those in that encounter. The folks who are bereaved, bereft, ill, the last thing they want to do is get out of bed and show up in a place with tons of people and trust that they're going to be held with love because they might they know that they might be rejected in that vulnerable state. And the people who are A-OK and having the spiritual encounter of their lives, the last thing they want to do is stop and pull over to the side and engage a, per- a brokenhearted person and say, tell me about your anguish. And yet that is the sacred work that is done in that most sacred space. And I realized that the ritual was calling to us from ancient times saying, listen, folks, we are broken. We are broken. We are breaking. And we must find our way to one another. We have to trust our hearts into communities of care. And we who have the strength have to see those who are anguished and honor their humanity and lift them up with the affirmation that one human being can give another by seeing them and actually bless them on their journey. Because what can happen if we don't if we are the brokenhearted and we isolate what can happen well what this is exactly what we're seeing in our society today i mean we're suffering through 
a, a massive epidemic of loneliness that's reached the point of real social and spiritual crisis in which we are lonelier, more alienated, more isolated from one another, and more divided from one another than before. And this is even pre-COVID. We know that 30% of Americans say that they do not, did not know before COVID the names of their next-door neighbors, and that more than 20% of Americans say that they have not one single confidant, not one person who they trust will hold their broken heart with love. Um, and this is a crisis not only of spirit and of community, because we're seeing the breakdown of community, but it's also a crisis of democracy, because I, I hear the, the warning of Hannah Arendt, the great 20th century philosopher, who said that loneliness and social alienation and isolation are preconditions for tyranny and for conspiracy theories, that those conspiracy theories cannot take hold, that a tyrannical regime cannot take hold in a society where people know and trust their neighbors. Mm. And we don't know and trust each other. So we've pulled into deep retreat from one another, and it's manifesting in all kinds of unhealthy ways in uh, in our individual lives, in our communal lives, and in our society. And, and is the same true, the impact the same if you are doing well and you don't take that responsibility to show up for others? Because you also mentioned that that can also feel counterinstinctual. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I want to say that I think there are a lot of really good reasons why people don't show up for those who are in need. Um, we feel like we're going to be imposing on people who are suffering, struggling through grief or through illness. Um, we, we feel like we're going to say the wrong words and we might end up hurting someone precisely at the time that we want to be helping them. We feel like their pain is contagious. Their divorce is contagious. Their cancer is contagious. And so if we get too close to their suffering, we have to then contend with the fact that we too are very vulnerable. And this is a particular pain point mm. when we encounter people who've suffered tragic loss and traumatic loss, including the loss of children, that we see people who should step forward end up pulling away because confronting the reality of, of that kind of death, that kind of loss, actually terrifies us. It, it undoes us. And so we tend to pull away. But what the bereaved need is presence. They need people to be, we need people to be with us in our darkest and most painful moments, not to fix us, but to be with us, to bear witness, as I say in, in the book, this, mm. this sacred idea that our holiest task as human beings and the greatest gift we can give one another is simply to weep together with another person through the dark night of the soul and just say, I see you. I can't fix you, but I'm not going to run away from your pain. I'm going to be here with love and even with relentless love. I'm going to come back again next week and I'm going to come back again the week after because you need. I want you to know that you're not alone as you navigate the depths of the heartache that you have encountered. We're talking with Sharon Brow, senior rabbi and co-founder of ECAR, a Jewish congregation in Los Angeles. Her new book is called The Amen Effect, Ancient Wisdom to Mend Our Broken Hearts and World. There is another lesson you draw from the ancient text that we talked about at the outset, and that is our impulse toward what you call tribalism. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so most of the book is actually focused on 
the bereft, the bereaved, the unwell, the lonely, and what our responsibilities are when we're in that position and when we encounter somebody who's experiencing that. But in the eighth chapter of the book, I speak about a second example that's brought in this very terse, by the way, ancient text describing the ritual. The first example that they bring is the Avel, the mourner. This is, and which I extrapolate from that to mean anyone who's brokenhearted. But the second example that they bring is the menudeh. This is an ancient category of someone who's just short of excommunication. It's somebody who has been ostracized from the community. And the text says that they too go up to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and they too enter that sacred entryway and circle around the courtyard, but they circle in the direction of the bereaved. And it's actually astonishing because the menudet is a person who's being punished for causing harm to an individual or to the community. And we are to, the community is to socially distance from that person. It's, it's understood that their presence is such a toxic presence that they're not to be engaged by the community as long as they continue through this period of ostracization. And yet they go up to the Temple Mount the same day everyone else does, and they circle in the direction of the bereaved, and they too are encountered with compassion and with care. We look into their eyes. We ask them, tell me your story. What does it look like from your perspective? And we bless them. And this draws draws out, I think, a, a really critical lesson, which is we're not only called to hold one another with compassion and care, but actually to hold the other with compassion and with curiosity and with care. Meaning somebody whose viewpoint, somebody whose even their actions and their words are like a dagger in our hearts. They've caused us pain. And even still, we're called to see them and to ask them about their sorrow, about their heartache, about what the world looks like from their perspective, and then to find the strength to actually give them a blessing too. This is a radical act of rehumanization, precisely of the people that we're least inclined to see in their fullest humanity because of the way that we've been hurt by them. And we will have more with you, Rabbi Brous, about that right after the break. And I want to hear from our listeners. What do you want to ask or tell Rabbi Brous? Does what Rabbi Brous is saying resonate with you? Did you ever feel an instinct to turn inward? When were you ready to look outward? 866-733-6786 is the number to call. You can email forum at kqed.org or find us on our social channels at KQED Forum. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. So many of us have felt as if we've been drowning in an ocean of sorrow and helplessness, writes Sharon Rabbi Browse of Los Angeles. Her new book is called The Amen Effect, Ancient Wisdom to Mend Our Broken Hearts and World. And she's joining us to talk about learning how to talk and see people across differences and to appreciate our shared humanity. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation with your questions or comments for for Rabbi Browse. If there's a story or text that you turn to as she did when navigating a tragedy or a difficult moment, we're also talking about the instinct to turn inward. And if you've ever felt that, a need to protect yourself or your community, when were you ready to look outward? Did you ever feel like you had difficulty seeing the humanity in another person? What helped you break through? 866-733-6786 is the number. The email address is forum at kqed.org. Our social channels are at KQED Forum on Twitter or X, Instagram, or our digital community on Discord. You've talked about this tendency to turn inward in two ways. One, as appropriate or justified initially, but not to stay there too long because it can be perilous. Can you talk about what you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. And you asked about tribalism too. So I'll I'll try to address both of those together. So as as relational beings, and we are fundamentally relational beings, that is a biological, psychological, and spiritual reality of the human condition. As relational beings, we need to find our way to other people. And we have a natural tribal instinct, which is that we are drawn naturally to people who either look like us, talk like us, maybe vote like us, maybe pray like us. We yearn for our tribe. And that can be a very powerful and important instinct because as relational beings, we need to find our way into community. But we now know that the depth of our connection to our tribe often results in 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 kind of in, inverse relationship to the people who are outside our tribe, a, a kind of disconnect from people who are outside indifference or even a hostility toward people who are from another tribe or even just outside our tribe. And that can be incredibly dangerous uh, for us and for our society. It makes it even harder for us to see one another's humanity. And that, of course, is it, um, comes to exaggerated effect um, when we are experiencing trauma or loss or great fear. So I've been looking uh, very deeply into Jewish mourning rituals uh, as a source of wisdom uh, for our time, because these, there, I say there are a few things that Jews do really well. Uh, we do comedy well, and we do mourning rituals really well. <laughs> the, the Jewish mourning practices are very psychologically attuned, and so one of the central practices is the practice of of shiva, of going into the house of mourning directly from the graveside after the burial for seven days. We go back to our homes when we are in the deepest and most intense experience of grief. And when you're in Shiva, you are only surrounded by love. 
Only your tribe is with you. This is not a bridge bridge building moment. It's a moment to be held with great care and with great love. Your tribe feeds you. Your tribe sits with you, hands you tissues, asks you to share stories of your loved one, looks at pictures of your loved one, holds your broken heart. And that is exactly the right response to somebody who's experiencing acute trauma. But once we we move out of that acute phase of grief, we realize we cannot stay in Shiva forever. You can't stay in the house of mourning. And there's a ritual that calls us to stand up at the end of seven days where you really haven't left your house in the traditional observance. You don't go to work. You don't you know, go for long walks. But we get up at the end of seven days and we walk around the block. And when we do, we expand the scope of moral concern to realize that my sorrow is not the only sorrow in the world. And look, there's my neighbor who also just experienced a loss. And there's another person walking down the street who just fell in love. And then there's someone else, you know, who's just late to work. And you kind of expand your sense of the the richness of the human experience around you. And you're in a position where you can start to actually reach out beyond your immediate tribe and feel that sense of connectedness and even an opportunity for building, uh, for retethering to the community beyond. Mm. And I think that that's an important model for us to remember, especially in moments like this, when trauma, grief, and fear call us into our, our kind of tribal spaces so that we can, you know, lick our wounds and 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 grieve and and weep and not apologize for it. But we can't stay in that space of acute pain forever without stepping out and recognizing the grandness of the world. The world is big, and there's so much human suffering, and there's so much beauty in the world. And we have to, at some point, be able to re-encounter the vastness of that reality. And part of the steps of that transition, as you say, is by going out, showing our pain, having it held by others, then being open to seeing the pain of others, but also the joys and celebrations that are happening in the world. You know, last week, we had a panel of Palestinian journalists, both in Gaza and and forced to exile, who shared their pain. And I want to ask you, what do you do if others are not responding appropriately when you show it. You've talked about how difficult it can be for people who are in a space of fear or who are fearing for their safety to, I think you said, lead with our best moral thinking. And I guess I want to ask this question in the context of of Jews who encounter anti-Semitism, who are feeling unsafe. And if you can talk about, you know, how how to break through if you if you don't if if you are experiencing pain the world is seeing your pain and yet responding in some cases with anti-semitism right so this is a really a really important question the whole structure of this ancient ritual which forms the foundation of my of my book and my thinking is that you do trust that when you show up and walk in the opposite direction from everyone that you will be held with love And what happens when you show up with your broken heart, but you are not met with love, and instead you're met with rage? And I I do, I feel that this is something that many people in the Jewish community have experienced in, especially in the immediate aftermath of October 7th, that many of us felt like, you know, we, we who have trained our hearts as much as possible as an American Jewish community 
to to walk in the direction of folks who had the you know by and large the privilege of turning to the right and circling counterclockwise and lifting our gaze and seeing where the pain points were in our society and then working working assiduously to try to um, to try to build a just and loving society the moment that we enter that sacred space and turn to the left now in the direction of the brokenhearted we were not met with love and instead many of us were met with silence or even with people who justified and even celebrated the atrocities committed against our family and that led to a kind of existential loneliness that many Jews felt, not only in the United States, but around the world. And that I felt, that I felt. Um, and it's it's really painful. It's painful because it feels like the whole... Um, the the whole idea of relational living is that I, 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 I see your pain when you're walking to the left, and I know that one day you'll see mine. So what happens if you don't see mine? Mm. And... I have to say that I have also heard many Palestinians express the same thing, that they are in such such profound anguish and shock and grief, and that they also don't feel held and don't feel embraced and don't feel seen by the world. And so, th I mean, this is important for us to understand that the very sense of abandonment that Jews feel when it comes to our own anguish this was i mean the atrocities on october 7th were the this was these were the worst atrocities committed against jews since the holocaust this is such a deep triggering of our intergenerational trauma and such a profound sense of vulnerability in the world and and add compounding that terrible anguish was the sense of abandonment from the world and I hear this very same thing, that compounding the sense of devastating loss and fear for loved ones who are in Gaza is the sense that the powers that be in the world do not see or care about Palestinian suffering. That, that points me to a possible bridge, right? We are, have very similar emotional responses to what's going on in this moment. We're hurt we're traumatized. We're we're terribly fearful for the future. We know from psychology that that leads us to dichotomous and binary thinking, and yet our human hearts should recognize the pain and the anguish and sense of abandonment in the other, and we could choose instead to make that a point of connection, an opportunity for rehumanization. We're talking with Los Angeles faith leader Rabbi Sharon Brouse, and you, our listeners, are joining the conversation. Let me go to caller Allison in San Mateo. Allison, you're on. I just wanted to thank you for this um, this segment because listening to the rabbi, um, I've experienced pregnancy loss multiple times this year, and I too have retreated from my religious community out of fear and grief. And hearing the segment today has really propelled me to be a part of it again. Oh, so I really wanted to thank you for everything you're saying, because throughout the pregnancy losses and the loss of my husband's father, there's just been so much grief. And we're pregnant again. And the fear mm -hmm. there of being a part of the community is palatable. So hearing mm -hmm. your segment has really like I said, help me to be, to rejoin. Oh, Allison, thank you for, sh for sharing that and sharing 
your fear and, and, and pain, Rabbi Browse, I can hear you responding to Allison as well. Yeah, Allison, thank you. And I I I want to tell you that I, I see you, Mina and I see you, and I'm sure so many of the listeners who are here can relate to you. And I know from my own personal experience how deeply isolating pregnancy loss is. Um, and I just, I, I hope that you, even saying these words out loud is taking a step toward community and saying, I need to be seen, I need to be held in my pain. And I love that you're committing to take a step closer to your community. And I want to say to listeners that this doesn't have to be a faith community that you step closer to. If you have a faith community, a church, a synagogue, a mosque, a, that's wonderful. It could also be a book group. It could also be just two two old friends who you haven't connected with. Or it, it, we can build and find communities of love and care, communities of mutual concern um, in in many different contexts, and so I, I think it's very brave to say these words out loud. And I really bless you that you can that you find yourself surrounded in a context of love and care as you navigate this journey, Allison. Thank you. Michael writes, "I'm Jewish and have listened to Rabbi Braus. She articulates almost exactly where I stand. I have plenty of criticisms for Israel, and its rightward shift horrifies me. But I'm hesitant to criticize Israel because I want to show solidarity. It's very difficult to navigate with the added layer that when diaspora Jews are critical of Israel, we're told." You don't live here. You don't understand. In part, I am sympathetic, but I also think when you are so close to the conflict, you can't see the water you're swimming in. You may need a distance. Mm -hmm. You may need the distance that we have. Wow. Um, I think, Rabbi Baz, it's fair to say that you're not a fan of Netanyahu or those he has empowered. Um, where does that go in these moments? Should that be set aside? Well, first, Michael, thank you for this question. And I want to say that the most dominant voices in the public space, the most dominant Jewish voices, seem to be very binary voices. But I actually think that the and I think that there's also studies that bear this out, that the majority of American Jews stand where Michael stands. And so you might feel a little bit alone in this moment, holding these kind of complex feelings, a rejection of and great distrust of this kind of ethno-nationalist, militaristic, maximalist, messianic turn, this rightward turn that is embodied by um, this government that's now been in power for the last 13 months in Israel um, by and by Netanyahu's leadership, and also hold deep concern um, for and, and a yearning for justice for Palestinians and for there to be a just future. And I understand that it's scary to speak about that. And for many, many years, there has been a very tired script that American Jews need to you know, basically shut up and dribble, which is like, you don't live here. You're not on the front lines. I don't want to hear your criticism. But the fact is that we are so deeply connected. We are so deeply connected. And the words of ministers in Israel's government impact the daily lives of American Jews who are here because that is simply the way that anti-Semitism functions in the world, that that when somebody engages in, in a practice um, in, in Israel, and I'm thinking specifically about a couple of members of Knesset who have said words or engaged in behaviors that are so deep, antithetical to the values of American Jews, the way that that translates into our 
communities here is that we are held accountable for those words. That is profoundly unfair. It's rooted in anti-Semitism. It's rooted in the idea that any one Jew is responsible for the behavior of all Jews. We know that that's how racism works generally, and it certainly works that way for Jews. It may be unfair, but the reality is that we cannot be silenced in this moment. We have a strong moral core. As one of my dear friends, Daniel Sokach, who's the head of the New Israel Fund, says all the time, our values are our bedrock. They do not change. We who have built for generations have built a Jewish life that is rooted in Torah values of love and justice, of equity and equality, also hold those values when we look to the landscape of Israel-Palestine. And so I'm not going to shut up and dribble. And Michael, you shouldn't either. I think you should speak from the heart. I think you should reject the false binaries and the kind of dichotomous thinking of our time that you're either you're either in this camp or you're in this camp, and instead continue to bring to the public arena um, a narrative that actually calls for the rehumanizing of Israeli Jews and Palestinians none of whom are going anywhere, and most of whom actually want to put their kids to bed safely at night. And that means resourcing and amplifying and platforming the voices of those Israelis and Palestinians who are in the, who are in the trenches working to build that just future that I know to be possible. Rabbi Sharon Brous's book is The Amen Effect, Ancient Wisdom to Mend Our Broken Hearts and World. Hugh writes, how do you disentangle people or protests that are anti-Israel in good faith from anti-Israel sentiment that is motivated by anti-Semitism? That's that's a very hard question for our time. And I, I mean, we've seen literally from the moment that we the news spread about October 7th, there were these protests in Sydney at the Opera House with people screaming, gas the Jews. And we've seen swastikas at these protests. And we, we see all kinds of Holocaust imagery and people engaging in overt anti-Semitism at a lot of these um, pro-Palestine protests. Um, I I don't believe that counter-protesting is the way to respond to anti-Semitism in these spaces. I believe that as much as we can, engaging in clear-headed communication about our commitment to the rehumanizing of Palestinians and the rehumanizing of Israelis, committing to a just and loving future, clear-headed um thoughtful, compassionate, and curious conversation will lead to that outcome. I, if, if I were at those protests, I would have a zero tolerance policy for any expressions of anti-Semitism, even in the midst of criticism of government policies of the state of Israel, which are absolutely legitimate. They are as legitimate as American protests against policies of the U.S. government, many of which I have participated in over the course of many, many years. Um, but criticizing a, a war effort and criticizing an ethno-nationalist government is not the same as allowing overt anti-Semitism. And here I will just remind us that the only liberation is collective liberation, that we can never achieve liberation as a society in a society that is rich with anti-Semitism. Jews also have to be a part of that collective vision of liberation. We're talking with Rabbi Sharon Braus of Los Angeles about how to think of the other when you are in fear or your heart is breaking. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about what it takes to see and learn across differences and to appreciate our shared humanity, especially when we are threatened or unsafe. We're talking with Sharon Browse, senior rabbi and co-founder of ECAR, a Jewish congregation in Los Angeles, whose new book is called The Amen Effect, Ancient Wisdom to Mend Our Broken Hearts and World. And you, our listeners, are sharing your questions, um, your stories for Rabbi Browse, telling us if you've ever felt an instinct to turn inward and how you got through that, telling us about what you turn to when navigating difficult personal or even collective tragedy. This listener writes, I turn to music to help heal my grief. It could be a soulful dirge or a joyful gospel song. It varies, but it always helps me during difficult times. You can reach us at 866-733-6786 by emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on our social channels at KQED Forum. Steve on Discord writes, I find too many on both sides conflate people with their leaders, blaming Palestinians for Hamas and Jews for Netanyahu. Traumas inflicted by each side upon each side drive the innocent moderates into hatred and extremism. Let me go to caller Matt in Napa. Matt, you're on. Okay, good morning. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the institutional barriers that seem to exist for the people that are in pain, such as the homeless and the elderly, that are often, you know, uh, liability laws and various things like that keep us from being in direct communication and just kind of tie that point in with the loss of the town square or a meeting place where people can just go to meet uh, in the digital age component on all of this and, uh, you know, the, the, the lack of emphasis put on face-to-face communication. Hmm. I guess those are the yeah. points. Well, Matt, I, I really appreciate that point. And um, Rabbi Browse, curious what you think about that. And also just, you've talked about in your dual role as a pastor to create a space, to create infrastructure, right, where people can grieve while at the same time offering moral clarity as you are doing as well. Do you also see difficulty in creating those spaces today as Matt is bringing up? Mm. Well, thank you for that question, Matt. Um, I, I, we did a, tri- a community trip to Central Europe um, a couple of summers ago in order to kind of retrace uh, our Jewish heritage there and also um, to, to, see, to, to be a part of the democracy movement, to meet with the leaders of the democracy movements in some of these um, countries. And what I, was, what I was so struck by was the public square, exactly as Matt is saying, that 
in these European towns, they all have these piazzas where people just come together and they can connect with each other. And we have privatized space to such an extent that it's very hard to find spaces where we can actually engage people and even engage people who have views and perspectives that are different from ours. And this is something we're working on building in Los Angeles right now, actually, building a space for for civic discourse, a place where we can um, engage in the most important moral questions of our time with people who share our views and don't share our views. Um, it is also connected to what one of your what one of your callers um, sp- said about music, which is imagine a place where we could not only share ideas, but where we can actually listen to and celebrate music together and even sing together. And we this all connects back to what we're learning about the psyche and the way that trauma is metabolized in our system, that singing together, hearing music together, talking together, sitting across from one another and engaging each other, all of these are really critical to spiritual and mental wellness. And so I think that you're pointing to a, a really big um, problem that we have in our society today. And I think it's really critical that we we prioritize the building of spaces like this. I will say that there's a there's a jazz series at LACMA here in Los Angeles in the summer. And you'll see that once a week, there are just thousands of people who come and bring chairs and there's free live music. And it feels like a public square, like a place where people can actually encounter one another. And I think that those spaces are going to become even more and more critical as we try to respond to the atomization and alienation that so many of us are feeling from one another in our time. What is required to create the metaphorical space, I guess, or the not uh, literal space or infrastructure, but but a space where people feel safe enough to both grieve, but also hear, you know, some of the the lessons, the moral clarity that you are trying to share. You mentioned music as being powerful in that type of environment or creating that type of feeling, but are there things that you do to create what I think are, are sort of dual objectives? Well, I'll tell you what happened, Eddie Carr, this past Friday night, as an example. Um, this is our community uh, based in Los Angeles, but we actually have folks from all around the world now, which is which is pretty wonderful. But first, we sang together for an hour and a half, and it was one of the most exhilarating spiritual experiences of my life. Um, I mean, our community's been around for 20 years. Uh, but in that room on that night, we had about five, seven, five, six, seven hundred people. And we were just singing together. And there was so much joy in the room. And I think the way that we were able to tap into that joy is because we are also aware of how much anguish is in that room. And it's one of the things that's been really critical in building spiritual community is recognizing that if you are awake, there is always joy and there is always pain. Even in a house of mourning, there's laughter. And even at the wedding, there are tears. And so can you create spaces that can hold both loss and new love at the same time? So we were singing and dancing and experiencing this kind of exhilarating, timeless joy that was filled with anguish, that was filled with joy. And then, um, and then I talked a little bit about the book. This was kind of my official launch of the book into our community. Mm-hmm. And then, Mina, we enacted this ancient ritual in the room. 
And one of my my teachers and rabbis said to me afterwards, you know, this ritual hasn't been enacted in 2000 years. And we just embodied the ritual because I really I've been using it as a metaphor. Can we see each other? Can we see the person who's in anguish? Can the person who's in anguish feel the courage to step into community with our vulnerability? Can we meet sorrow with sorrow? Can we meet vulnerability with vulnerability? But then I actually ask that of the hundreds and hundreds of people who are in the room, the people who were okay that day to just go to the wall and circle around the perimeter of the room counterclockwise and the people who weren't okay to circle with me in the other direction. And I say with me because I'm also in my year of mourning. My father died just before the High Holy Days this year. And so I invited people to turn with me in the opposite direction and literally just wept as hundreds of people encountered each other in this very sacred act, which I think was opened up and made possible, not only because we spoke about the ritual, but because we sang together beforehand. And so our spirits were wide open and our hearts were really were really full. And so we were able to meet each other in that kind of trust. Now, as we said to Allison before, I don't think that that can only happen in a faith space. And so I think that it has to be intentional space. And we can do that for each other, even in the lunchroom, if we want to, in the office. I mean, we could say to colleagues, I, I want to ask that if somebody in this room is hurting right now, that you can like to, to be to be courageous enough to share where the hurt is and trust that we will hold your broken heart with care right now. Um, it can happen in so many different kinds of environments, but the combination of song and grief and love and loss and movement actually enhances the experience a thousandfold, I think. What about on college? campuses. One place we see tremendous division, especially with respect to the Israel-Hamas war, is on college campuses. And I'm just wondering, who can best mediate this? How should they go about doing it in, in an institution like that? So this has been very painful for everyone um, for the past four months. And I have a kid on a college campus that in some ways is kind of the epicenter of um, of some of the division here. And so I'm really living this also, uh, not only as an observer, mm-hmm. but as a parent. Um, and I I just, I want to repeat something I said earlier. I don't believe that the response to offensive and painful protest is counter-protest. I don't think that that is ever an effective response. But what we've seen that has started to work a little bit on certain campuses is smaller, more intentional gatherings that bring together people um, who are able to sit at the table together with a commitment that they're not going to get up from the table. In fact, this is one of the spiritual practices that I include at the end of my book, where I have eight spiritual practices, one for each chapter as a way of kind of operationalizing some of the ideas of the book. But the idea is, can you sit at the table? Can you hear ideas that make you uncomfortable? Can you encounter the way that in ancient times they encountered the ostracized person? Can you encounter someone whose words or even deeds have hurt you and caused you pain and turn to them instead of with rage? Can you turn to them with wonder? Can you get curious about each other? And I know of one university president that's literally doing this for students at a time, sitting students in the room and having lunch with them. And every single day, she meets with four different students. And it's going to take a long time for that to break through and see a real culture shift. But if you can stay at the table with someone 
then they can no longer be a caricature of themselves. They become a real live human being who's also experiencing sorrow, who's also full of fear, who's also full of anguish. And then it's it's just much harder to scream at each other on College Walk. And instead, you start to say, like, hey, maybe we can go get coffee and talk about this. Because I'm concerned by some of the ideas that you've been expressing or some of the ideas expressed at the protests that you've been to. Can we talk about it? And that is, I think, the path to rehumanization. Smaller, more intentional encounters where curiosity and wonder are at the very heart. That's the core promise that we make to each other as we sit down at the table. I'm hearing applications of that also to differences in the, in the political context. I'm thinking of families who are so deeply divided yes. over their political allegiances, no longer speak and feel like they're subordinating their principles to engage with someone whose politics are so in opposition to theirs. Right, right. And here, I, I mean, I, what, I, what I've been thinking about, as, and this is really as a someone who's been pastoring to a community. I've encountered this as a rabbi with so many families that are just broken through this last, you know, eight years or so because the politics have been so, it's so divided that people feel like they can't even go home for Thanksgiving. They can't sit at the table together. And what I've been working on is that we, there is a Venn diagram in most human relationships where there's at least a little bit of overlap and when we shout at each other from the outer margins of that Venn diagram, the part that's not overlapping, we are never going to see eye to eye. But there is usually a place where we can meet, where we where we recognize that the other person, even though their views are very painful to us and might even feel like an indignity for us to engage, they might even har- they might even feel very harmful and hurtful. But that there is some overlap in our values, like we're worried about the future. We care about our children. We don't want innocent people to die, those sorts of things. And I believe that we often start these conversations from the margins where we should start the conversations from the center, from that very human overlap of values. And that leads to a building of trust and relationship, a kind of thickening of the relationship that allows us to then have the more courageous conversations when we start to move further and further out uh, from from that overlapping space. We're talking with Rabbi Sharon Brous. Her book is The Amen Effect. This happens to be a fundraising period for many public radio stations, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. So SD writes, as a left-wing Israeli citizen, the hardest part for me is knowing that every time we have come close to the elusive two-state solution, extremist violence has destroyed that opportunity. The rabbi talks about rehumanizing the people, but historically, it only takes one bullet or one bomb to reset everyone to the state of war. How do we overcome those who choose violence without using violence to stop them? Yeah, thank you, SD, for that question. I mean, I think that we have to make a choice. It is either eternal war and endless heartache and endless anguish and too many parents burying their children, or it is some kind of creative, imaginative, real, lasting, negotiated, just peace. And that you're, and Esty's right that one bullet or one bus bombing can destroy the attempt to that or can really be a setback on the path to that peace. But once we collectively decide that eternal war is not an option, suddenly the imperative to think creatively becomes so much more 
was so much more urgent and so much more firm. And we just platformed this past Shabbat two women, an Israeli Jew and a Palestinian citizen of Israel, who are working together on this incredibly creative, imaginative, just peace. And I don't know if it's the right answer. I don't know what the right answer exactly is, but I feel committed to platforming, amplifying, and helping resource the people on the ground who are doing the work to actually come up with imaginative responses, because I know that the answer is not eternal war. It can't be. There is just too much heartache in this land. And I also know that every conflict that eventually ended, when people were in it, it seemed impossible that it would ever end. And we can look at every major conflict throughout world history. Nobody ever dreamed that that countries in Europe could could have free travel between borders before. Nobody ever imagined how the how the war in Ireland would end. And yet wars end and people are able to build healthy futures, uh, travel to Vietnam and Cambodia, war torn lands where now people are living peacefully together and it's not perfect. But it is possible, and I believe with every ounce of my being that it is absolutely possible for that to be the future for Israelis and for Palestinians as well, a real and lasting negotiated just peace that really honors the rights and the dignities of all of the people who inhabit that land. Well, Taryn writes, I'm a member of the Sikh faith, and like the Jews, we don't face random hate. We face state-sponsored hate, which is so hard for individuals to deal with. Our house of worship has been a place of refuge for us, but as individuals, we have been rattled every time by an event that can push a new wave of hate towards our community. Your work is instrumental in bringing harmony and peace to the world. Thank you for what you do. Oh, that's nice, Taryn. Thank um, you, Taryn. For Rabbi Browse. I, I want to ask you about something striking you said in an interview with Ezra Klein a few months ago that you have faced criticism and accusations as a progressive rabbi of being naive or downplaying the degree maybe of anti-Semitism in the broader population and that mm-hmm. for a moment you believe them or you thought they were right and and maybe in some ways you still do think they were right but I'm wondering how you worked through that. Mm, well this connects to Taryn's comment actually I mean they're right, and I'm right. <laughs> um, I, I have responded to hints of anti-Semitism, especially in the racial justice space, which is, you know, I've, I've been in this movement space for many, many years, and I have actually a master's degree in human rights and conflict resolution, and I've really invested so much of my life in the work for a just America and for a just future. And it's painful because I've seen over the years really, really clear indications of anti-Semitism in that space. And my response has always been, we have to lean into relationship. We have to continue to invest in one another and together we will grow and heal. And post-October 7th, I had to do a real assessment of that. And I realized that some of the people who said that I was being naive, that there was actually much more anti-Semitism in that space that was latent and that I wasn't being honest with myself about it, that there there really was a lot of, an- of latent anti-Semitism and there is a lot of latent, uninterrogated anti-Semitism in that space. And also, I'm right, because I believe the only way that we will work through this is by continuing to invest in a just and loving future. And to Taryn's point, I know many in the Sikh community who've similarly, especially when faced with violence against your community, have reinvested in trying to be a part of a mm-hmm. multiracial, multi-faith coalition to build a true, um, a true multiracial democracy. 
And so we do this work and we do it with love because we know ultimately we're on the path toward building some kind of better future. Rabbi Bross, thank you. And my thanks also to Susie Britton for producing today's segment. My thanks to our listeners. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.